This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And you have tuned in to the Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions. Whatever's on your heart and mind, we'll do the best we can not to avoid any question, and we'll answer as best we are able. You can call us by dialing 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. You can call toll-free if you're outside the local area at 877-630-630. KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions at calvarysa.com or you can send questions in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. And if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. All you have to do is hit the call now button at the top of your screen and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Uh, Because it's Tuesday, we don't have a bunch going on. Ladies, I hope you enjoyed uh, Tracy Nugent, Sweet Summer Devotion uh, yesterday. I got really busy today and didn't have a chance to listen, but I'll do that tomorrow. Um, You can listen if you missed it at calvarysa.com. I'm a little bummed out because I got just a really awful, ugly question that just came in. So let me deal with that one first, and then we will go to uh, more honest questions. Uh, This first one is anonymous. Uh, And Anonymous, if you're listening, and I trust that you are since you just sent the question, this isn't a complaint against you. I understand what you're saying. Here's her or his question. I have a co-worker who says that interracial marriage is against the Bible. He sent me the following argument. Eve's formation from Adam's own flesh is a compelling creation pattern for all future marriages. The first mention uh, principle of biblical hermeneutics is God indicates in the first mention of a subject the truth with which that subject stands connected in the mind of God. This is obviously the first instance of marriage, but what about the first instance of miscegenation? That word, by the way, means um, breeding between racial groups. Uh, The one that comes to mind is Esau's polygamous marriage to two Hittite women in Genesis 26. These marriages greatly grieved Isaac and Rebekah and this co-worker said, we fail to honor our father and mother when we marry someone so unlike them and provide them with grandchildren who are likewise alien. It only takes one mixed marriage to distort many generations of the faithful practice by our forefathers of marrying their own kind. And then back to the questioner. He spouted a lot more, but I can't bear to mention it. His stance grieves me. How can I minister to such a sick point of view? 
Um, anonymous, I don't think you can. Uh, this man or woman is simply a racist, uh, someone who understands not only uh, does not understand the heart of God, but doesn't understand the Bible that he or she uh, is trying to proclaim. I, I love the, the fact that, that this person tried to bring the principle of first mention, which is important, uh, an important hermeneutic, but it's only important as it relates to doctrinal issues or typologies. Uh, Adam and Eve's marriage, Adam means mankind, uh, humankind. Uh, Eve came out of Adam, and God made them. Um, we have no idea what they look like. We have no idea. This wasn't a natural process of, of DNA taking shape. This was just something that God created uh, on his own. We also know that both were covered by the glory of God, so they wouldn't have seen any difference, even if those differences existed. So this is a mind that is simply um, a racist, um, um, probably a white supremacist, um, and somebody who will stretch any piece of information um, to suit their own needs. This is one of those grievous cases where somebody's taking the Bible out of context and somebody's taking a Bible that they don't really understand and invoking the, the name of a God they don't even know. It is impossible to have this kind of viewpoint and be a Christian. I want to say that again. It is impossible to have this kind of a viewpoint and truly be saved. When one is born again, then the Spirit of Jesus, another counselor, another comforter, the word alos in the Greek means of the same sort, but different in terms of physicality. In other words, when Jesus left, he sent us another hymn to live in us. And Jesus accepted everybody. Jesus looked at everybody with equal amounts of love. And by the way, Jesus would have lived in one of the most diverse populations on planet Earth, in and around Jerusalem, especially there would have been people from Africa, people from um, um, all over the Arab nations. It was a melting pot. The Semitic peoples looked very similar. So this is simply um, trying to pick the right word. This is somebody who is trying to make God in his or her own image rather than understanding that we have been made in the image of God. Um, we know from Numbers chapter 12 that Moses married a black woman, a Cushite or an Ethiopian. Uh, either uh, this was Jethro's daughter, which is likely a very dark-skinned woman, though Though when he met her, of course, they lived in Midian, but they could have traveled there from, from uh, Ethiopia. Um, or this was Moses' second wife. Um, Moses lived an extraordinarily long life, and he could have, uh, um, the first wife could have been dead by this point. But Numbers chapter 12, they were discussed, discouraged uh, Miriam and Aaron and they were trying to rebel against Moses' leadership and their disgust was his black wife. And all you have to do is read what God's response was. They were questioning his leadership and that was just the excuse because what they were really grieved about was his Cushite wife. 
And God struck Miriam with leprosy. Evidently, she was the initiator. Moses was a man that was more humble than any man on the earth, by the way, that comes out of the same Numbers chapter 12 passage. And as a result, um, they learned their lesson. Um, I would say to this man or to this woman that you hope he learns his lesson before it's too late. But I would also tell him that the only message that he has or that you have for him or for her is that they need to get saved. They need to know Jesus. You simply cannot carry prejudice as a born-again Christian. You may have been raised in a prejudiced household. You may have very strong beliefs before you get saved, but remember the whole point of being saved is the old is gone and the new has come. Now, obviously, I'm married to my own personal Cushite, and I'm thrilled with her, and God calls her precious. So this is a, a man or woman that you don't spend much time with. You pray for them, but you tell them they need to repent, they need to get saved. And being that direct, this is a person who understands nothing about hermeneutics. This is a person who understands nothing about the heart of the character of God. In Christ, we are all one. There is no Jew or Gentile, Greek. And there was great animosity, of course, in the ancient world. There still is between Gentiles and Jews. No slave or free. I would add no rich or poor. No black or white. We're all one in Christ. And the reference from the very beginning is in the human race. So unless we're marrying outside of the human race, we are marrying our own kind. So Anonymous, I'm sorry you had to listen to that. Um, This kind of stuff always breaks the heart of the Lord. And yet there's nothing at all that we can do about it. 340-9585, better stuff now. Regarding the scripture in Luke chapter... I'm sorry, this is from Judy from our email inbox. Regarding the scripture in Luke chapter 5, verse 8, Peter falls at the knees of Jesus. Is there any significance to why Peter falls to Jesus' knees instead of his feet? Normally we fall on our knees or we fall at his feet. Uh, Matthew 2.11, Mark 5.22, and Mark chapter 7, verses 25 and 26. Judy... There's no significance. Uh, Remember, this happened in a boat. And so they were in a boat that would have meant almost certainly Jesus was sitting. And when Peter fell down, uh, Jesus' feet would be on the bottom of the boat. His knees would be up just a little bit higher. And that's where Peter would have fallen. So the idea is exactly the same. There's no distinction to be made here at all. Um, It's simply Peter falling, trying to get as low as he can in this boat. Because he realizes he's standing in the presence of God. At that moment, he realizes exactly who Jesus is and this marvelous miracle that was done. And that's why he says, Lord, depart from me. Lord, he said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Now, Judy, I don't know whether you heard my Bible study this week uh, online or maybe you were somebody who was here. Uh, I don't know. We had a lot of people here Sunday. Um, but but th- this is, this is that, that moment where Peter 
was being prepared to make a choice. This was where Jesus was calling Peter into his full-time service. Peter, leave all these worldly things and follow me. And of course, we know that he and James and John together left everything and followed Jesus. But this was Jesus calling them into a deeper relationship. It had been about a year since Jesus was first introduced by Andrew to Peter. And Andrew, his brother, and James and John and Peter were disciples. And by that I mean, we always use the word disciples like they're Christians, but they were students of Jesus. They were uh, uh, following him around. They were listening to what he was saying. But but now, after about a year of Jesus' ministry, it's time for Jesus to call them deeper still. And that's when he says, leave everything. Soon in the Gospel of Luke, we're going to see Matthew being called to leave everything and follow Jesus. Well, that's always the call. And so this very moment that you've asked about is that moment where Jesus is asking Peter to make a once-in-a-lifetime and a once-in-forever choice. And so that's what he did. So I hope that helps a little bit. Thank you very, very much for the question. 340-9585. Here is a question from Matthew. Um, Pastor Ron, how is it going to be possible for the Antichrist to deceive nearly the whole world? Do we know what the lie, and that's in parentheses, is? Um, Matthew, we don't know what the lie is, but the lie, of course, always deals with Jesus isn't the Son of God. God doesn't love you. God won't take care of you. Remember, the Antichrist is going to deceive, and, and, and the Lord is going to allow that deception to go, because the truth is people who want to be deceived will be. Now, we shouldn't have to worry about how it's going to be possible for the Antichrist to deceive nearly the whole world. We see our whole world nearly now being deceived. I want you to think about something, Matthew. We have been, uh, in the last five years, we have had things that have been understood as true and as Orthodox Christian teaching for 2,000 years. And now all of a sudden, all of it is coming into question. Whether or not men should marry men, or whether a, a man or a woman born in their biological sex, if God made a mistake, and they should be something else. I mean, as little as five years ago, nobody would have questioned those statements. And yet here we are now. The homosexuality argument, of course, has been around a little longer than five years. But, but in the last five years, it's just sort of like everything has been foisted upon us all at once. And we're expected just to throw away everything that we've ever known to be true, everything that's been accepted for the 2,000 years of the history of the church. And now we're being asked to just dump it all. And multitudes, multitudes, Matthew, of Christians, professing Christians, are doing just that. We're so easily being convinced that the things that we always held as true and rightly representing our Christ, well, suddenly they're not true, and things are different, and we're supposed to just fall into lockstep. I point that out because the world is already being deceived. The spirit of Antichrist is already here and alive and well in our midst. So the way he's always done it, Matthew, is simple. People who will not believe in the truth will believe anything. And then people who will not hold on to what is true 
will be the first to be deceived. The moment we start questioning, is God good? Does God love me? Did God really say? Isn't it interesting that that's the first lie of the devil to Adam and Eve? Did God really say? He's been saying that from that moment forward to humanity. So that's how we're going to be deceived. Our hearts grow hard. We turn our back on God. Let me just go on for another minute here, Matthew, and I apologize because this isn't what you asked. But one of the things that breaks my heart continually, and this is literally a source of prayer nearly every day for me, I lament over the condition of so much of the church. I think of Daniel. seeing these great visions of the end times and understanding how wicked and evil his people, Israel, have been. And even though Daniel has not a single sin reported, he appears to be one of the two most righteous men in all of Scripture, along with Isaiah. And yet Daniel cries out, Forgive us, O Lord, we have sinned. Not they have sinned, but we, your people, have sinned. And the reason they sinned is because they let go of God's word. And they did what seemed right to them. And the result, of course, in Daniel's case, was the judgment in Babylon. Well, this everyday prayer, or nearly everyday prayer, is me repenting and confessing over the sins of God's church. And what I say is things like, Lord, for 2,000 years we believed these things to be holy and true. And now your church, your people are turning their back on your word. And because we're turning our back on your word, we no longer know what to believe. Now, I'm not turning my back on God's word. And I hope most of you aren't. But the truth is the professing church of Jesus Christ has done that for a long time. The Episcopal church, the Anglican church, the Lutheran church. United Methodist Church. They've thrown God's word out a long time ago. And look what happens. The denominations begin to shrink up and die. And we simply do not, as a church body, even those of us who are faithful to the word of God, we simply do not stand and proclaim loudly enough that we must believe in God's word. Not in the traditions of the church, but in the absolute authority, the supremacy of God's word in our lives. I had somebody get frustrated with me not long ago and said, well, pastor, we're not saved by a book. And my answer to him was, you're right, we're not saved by a book, but that book tells us about the one that did save us. Unless we have that book as our supreme authority in life, for life, for practice, for doctrine, for behavior, and just love, unless we have that book, we have no idea who our Jesus is. And when we start to let go of the book, what we do is we keep changing who he is according to how we feel. So Matthew, the deception that is going to come in the end is already here. And when we are taken away in the rapture of the church, 
when the restrainer and the restrainer that Paul talks about in his letter to the Thessalonians is the Holy Spirit living in and working in the church. When we're taken out of the way, then this world is going to be plunged over into complete darkness. That's why the Great Tribulation is going to be as severe as it is. So, Matthew, that's a lot more than you asked, but that is just one of those things that is right now so heavily on my heart. It's why, by the way, that uh, I get so frustrated with churches that still claim to believe in the authority of the Bible but won't teach it. They'll preach it. They'll tell stories about it. But they won't tell somebody who's sinning to stop. They won't tell somebody that there's nothing good in us that is in our flesh. And when we start lightening up, when we start making it more palatable, the Word of God, then we are guilty of sin and need to repent. So I hope that helps, Matthew. Uh, here's a question from Dwayne, and he's probably thinking, especially this now after our first two questions in my comments today. Dwayne says, Pastor Ron, what theological training do you have that qualifies you to be a pastor or to do a show like this? Uh, I'll answer your question, then I'll get into what I think you're really asking, Dwayne. Um, I did go to Bible college, Calvary Chapel Bible College, graduated from there. Um, but that isn't the theological training that qualifies me to be a pastor. What qualifies me to be a pastor is that I was called by God to do it. God calls the unqualified and then empowers them and qualifies them to do the work. You know, Dwayne, the idea that we have to go to a seminary. Um, remember, I'm a college graduate, so I'm not. I'm, a, I'm big on education. But Peter, James, and John, and the others, they didn't get a seminary degree. The Apostle Paul was an expert in the law, and look what that got him when he was Saul of Tarsus. It was only when he was called by God and empowered by God to do what God has asked him to do. And honestly, Dwayne, I know an awful lot of men who have been pastoring for a very, very long time who never went to a Bible college or a seminary, and yet the fruit that's coming from the ministries um, and from their lives is overwhelming because God is able. When God called me to be a pastor, he called the foolish things of this world. He called the things that are despised, the things that are not in other words, he called the silly things. Nobody would have believed I'd ever been a pastor. And yet God made me one. And frankly, Dwayne, that's all the qualification that I need. You know, I have the privilege of coming to this church every day, but when the crowds are here, I'm Pastor Ron. I see the fruit in people's lives. I see lives that have been transformed, taken out of the dirt, and, and now are lives that are like trophies for Jesus. And we do it because the Word is taught. So that's the only qualification I have, and theological training doesn't really matter. The, the study that I did wasn't even as 
stringent as the study I was doing before I went to Bible college, Dwayne. Um, this is this is just what God's called me to do. The last part of the question, we're running out of time for this half hour of the program. Uh, what qualifies me to do a show like this? I don't know. I don't. I don't like to listen to repeats of this show simply because I don't think I'm very good at doing this show. Um, but I can tell you this: I've studied my Bible. I've made it my life's work for the last 27 years, and it's the only thing that I'm sort of an expert in. And even still, without the Spirit of God. Um, I make a mess of things. So I do a show like this because KSLR and their management was silly enough to ask me to do it. And I keep doing it because people keep listening. And I love the fruit that's produced. So, Dwayne, that's pretty much the only way I can answer the question. Don't have time to go to another question before the program. We're going to hear the music to sign off in a moment. But I think this is a lesson that we all need to learn. Whatever it is that God calls us to do, He also empowers us to do. And as Christians, our responsibility is to always and only say, Yes, Lord. And I don't need a PhD. You don't need... A seminary degree. You start telling people about Jesus and God will use you. I promise. We have 30 minutes left. I'd love your calls to sort of change the, the mood on the show today. 340-9585 for your live calls. We'll be back in two minutes. the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of the tuesday show 340-9585 i know i wanted to leave last half hour and that last half hour the old is gone and the new has come but i want to say one more thing to anonymous who wrote in about her racist co-worker Two quick things. One, never be intimidated by that kind of ignorance because somebody uses words like hermeneutics and the principle of first mention. Um, um, it's easy to distort um, what, what are solid hermeneutic principles um, when you are trying to support uh, a, a life view that this man or this woman did. So don't be intimidated. The other thing, uh, in a workplace... Um, we live in a really sensitive world. When somebody's talking like that, you need to go to your HR supervisor and let them know that, that this man, this woman is a racist and here are the things that they are saying. And at least that way you're protecting your employer and your company as well. So let's now put the old in the old category away from us. Here's a question. I, this question came in twice. One says Daryl and the other says Darren. So whether you're Daryl or Darren, I'm not sure. But here's the question. Do you believe that the American Revolution was illegitimate based on Romans chapter 13? That's a wonderful question, Daryl or Darren. Um, this is a question that is still being debated. 
uh, in seminaries um, all over the country? Um, The answer is, I don't know, and I don't really care. Um, our, Our nation, though founded by men who were Christians, was not founded as a Christian nation. We need to get that straight in our hearts and in our minds. I know it makes us feel good to be able to say those things, but the truth is, it was a completely different world. Um, this was a political movement. Uh, I obviously see the hand of God in it. That doesn't mean that we're God's special people. He just picked us up and did this. Um, if you go by the letter of Romans chapter 13, every one of those people should have honored the king. Paul wrote that when Caesar Nero was the king, Peter also wrote that we're to submit to the king, the governing authorities, and Nero was the king when Peter wrote that. So it's not just good government or bad government. Here's what we really need to understand, that whether it was legitimate or not, Romans 8.28 applies, God works all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. And so God used this rebellion, this revolution, and he created a a, a nation that is um, up to now the most powerful and been the greatest nation on the face of the earth. Um, There was no disputing about that. That wasn't uh, an anti-other countries thing to say for my entire lifetime. Um, God raised his country up to support Israel, to make sure that, that Israel would have a protector when 1948 came and Israel was allowed to return to their homeland. So um, whether it was legitimate or illegitimate is not the issue. Uh, the issue is um, now are we going to respond to the goodness that God has poured out by serving him or by re- rebelling against him? And sadly, uh, Daryl or Darren, I think it's um, unfortunately uh, the answer is that we're not very grateful as a nation, as a people. Let's go to Salt Lake City, Utah, and talk with Mike. Mike, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, sir. How are you? I'm doing really well, thanks. First-time listener, first-time caller, as a matter of fact. I just stumbled across the show online. Uh, I just want to speak for for a second. Uh, I'm kind of new to, you know, uh, biblical teachings, I guess. Uh, I was raised Catholic. Um, and I'm kind of, you know, falling away from that with everything that's happened in the Catholic Church and, and mm-hmm. getting into more non-denominational. Uh, and I just wanted to speak to uh, what I had heard uh, recently about the deception that's coming. And forgive me if this is way in left field, but I think, you know, I hear these things at the Catholic Church and, uh, you know, all the television shows and things like that. And again, forgive me if this is in left field, uh, you know, with UFOs and aliens and, you know, all of these shows and, and topics on, uh, you know, uh, extraterrestrials and things like that. And I often think, you know, what could cause everybody on earth or a majority of people on earth to get the elect, as the Bible says, to turn away from God at once? And I think that the mass deception is going to be something around that. I think it's going to be a deception with, you know, aliens have come and they have seated us on this planet and that and no, there is no God and, and we're your gods and we're what 
Bruce Todd. And, and I honestly think that in the last decade, we see these programs, we see these shows that, that push these topics. I think that what people call aliens nowadays and what people refer to as demonic entities in, in, in earlier days uh, are one and the same. And I think that that is the deception that's going to occur. So forgive me again if I'm way off in the left field. I'm just kind of piecing this together myself. Uh, but, you know, it's something that I often wonder about. I'm reporting what you're Thank, thank you, Mike. I'll, I'll answer while you listen uh, off the air. Um, a couple of things before I get into this. And by the way, I don't think you're way off in the field at all. Um, if you're you're just coming away from the Catholic Church and this kind of thing is new to you, I've got a really good friend who uh, pastors at Calvary Chapel in Salt Lake City. His name is Terry Long. So if you're looking for a really good Bible teaching church, Terry has been in Salt Lake City for 30 years. And uh, I can promise you, you would be well taught if uh, you were at, um, at, at uh, Calvary Chapel in Salt Lake City. Now, to your question. Um, I said to the earlier question that when you don't believe what's true, you'll believe anything. It amazes me that we will believe in aliens. It amazes me that we'll believe in, in some of the conspiracy theories. But that's always characteristic of people who will not believe what is demonstrably true. And our faith in Jesus Christ is a reasonable faith. We can provide overwhelming evidence, not only to the exclusivity of the claims of Christ, but to, to the veracity of those claims. So, so nobody has to check their brain in at the door. But when you reject the grace of God, there's nothing left but to pursue uh, anything and everything else. Now, I personally have always believed, now there's no biblical proof for this, Mike, But I've personally always believed that aliens would be used, at least in part, to explain um, the rapture of the church. Um, I I just, uh, again, I have no proof of that. But, uh, you know, the enemy is patient. He is brilliant. And, and, you know, all the sci-fi stuff and all of the alien predictions and the UFOs and all those things that have been in our news now for my entire lifetime, um, 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 th- these are deceptions, and I agree with you on that. And, and you know, the question that I've had in my mind always is, well, how is even the Antichrist, who's going to be empowered supernaturally by the devil, how is the Antichrist going to explain um, the, the sudden snatching away of, of literally billions of Christians in this earth? And... I, I've always suspected that, that alien life would be one. Uh, another would be what's well, a cleansing. It's just the universe coming together to cleanse those people who are not suitable for going into the to the next generation. But um, I, I've always believed that aliens have a role, or or supposed aliens have a role. Uh, Mike, we know there are no aliens out there. We know that there isn't life. Jesus said He's told us everything. A friend tells a friend everything. Everything that we need to know about life is right here. And so the money that we're spending trying to find a a planet where life has come from, these discoveries that would say, well, it's possible that life was on Mars. We found some frozen water. Um, You know, all all of that is nonsense, um, plain and simple. So um, 
we can hold fast to that which is true. Mike, great to hear from you. I hope you listen again. Uh, yeah, my producer and I at the break, we're just talking about War of the Worlds, the old Orson Welles radio program that caused people to kill themselves. Uh, we want to believe weird things. Um, and, and there's always an element of the demonic in that. So, Mike from Salt Lake City, thanks for listening. Thanks for calling. Let's go to San Antonio now on line two, talk with Richard. Richard, thanks for being patient. You're on the air. Uh, no problem, Pastor Ron. Thank you for the show that you put on every day. I enjoy watching it every time I drive uh, home from work. Uh, my question is, in the book of Deuteronomy uh, 29, verse 26, um, I, I read through the whole book uh, about a week ago, and uh, also uh, the next book of that, I think, is the book of Joshua. But this one particular uh, verse in uh, Deuteronomy 29-26 was kind of made, made me think uh, on this passage. Um, would you be able, I know you could, uh, can you explain that? that passage, and I'll listen to your answer off air. Okay, but before you hang up, Richard, is is yes. it they went off and worshipped other gods and bowed down to them, gods they did not know, gods he had not given them? Yes, it is. Uh, I, I was looking at the New Living Translation, and I, I checked off some of the other translations, and it says, instead they turned away to serve and worship gods they had not known before. Mm-hmm gods that were not from the Lord, and Lord mm-hmm. is all capitalized, and that made me, you know, that, that hit me, and I said, I, I wouldn't, I, I didn't understand that. Yeah, I think I, I think that's in the New Living Translation, and, I, and I, I'm, if you've been listening, Richard, I'm, I'm slowly becoming, I'm actually quickly becoming a fan of the New Living Translation. Um, but 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 I've not. The reason we haven't made any move to change to it is because I'm really not all that confident yet uh, in terms of the Old Testament translation. Uh, I think um, uh, you know whenever you see the word Lord with all capitals in the Old Testament. Um, it, it's the it's the the word for Yahweh. It's it's the the, the God of hosts, and um, all this is saying is that His people, who um, uh, the reason for the judgment, and and that's what um, we're talking about here. Uh, why has the Lord done this thing to the land? Why this fierce burning anger? Um, um, here's the answer: His people the privileged people of God, they went off on their own and worshipped other little g-gods. You bowed down to them, gods they did not know. And the NIV says, gods he had not given them. In other words, God wanted them to trust him with their future. God wanted them to trust him with his uh, in his goodness, in his ability to provide for them and to care for them. But what they did is they simply exchanged the worship of the one true God for gods that weren't really gods at all. So it's not an indication, as the New Living Translation says, that that, that they were little g-gods that weren't given by God. God has never given any little g-gods. He's always made the distinction about the, to worship the one true God in, in the Hebrew Shema. In the same book, the, the Lord your God is one God, O Israel. Here, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. So there's only one true God. And this is simply uh, an indication that they were worshiping gods that weren't really God at all. You know, this portion of Deuteronomy 
is God warning the people to leave not only the gods that they've been worshiping who aren't gods at all, but to leave the future in his hands instead of trying to to trust little gods that weren't gods at all uh, with it. So, um, you know, they, they thought they were safe. They were chosen by God. They began to presume upon their relationship with God. And in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 29, uh, God is simply saying, look, you can forfeit your blessing if you refuse to obey me. That's basically what he's saying to them. So, Richard, thank you for holding. I hope that answers your question. I love verse 29 in that, the last verse in that chapter. It says, the secret things, this is after this, uh, this scolding, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may follow all the words of this law. That's God simply saying, focus on what you know for sure, instead of chasing things you're not sure of. Hold on to the one who's taken you in his hand instead of worshiping as the world around you is worshiping. So I hope that helps. Thank you, Richard, very, very much. Alex has a question, interesting question. Can you describe the Lutheran doctrine of serving God by serving family and vocation instead of serving at church? Um, Alex, it's it's always an interesting one. The first time I heard this from a Lutheran, um, I asked one day, I said, so what kind of service are you involved in? He goes, well, I go to work every day. I serve God by working, providing for my family. And it's true, that's serving God. But it's also something you get paid to do. So their doctrine of vocational sanctification is one that is very, very sketchy at best. Yes, we should serve God where we work. And yes, we get paid for it. But but that's certainly not all we do. And I think sometimes it's a, a doctrine that is a cop-out to keep from serving. It's interesting that the guy that I was talking to about this uh, actually was very involved in his particular Lutheran church. Um, uh, he was involved in, in lay leadership, and um, um, but, but it was just like, no, nobody needs to serve God. You serve God by going to work and doing a good job. Well, while that's true, one needs only to look at Luke chapter 17 to find out what a servant really is. And here's something, none of us should ever expect God to, to, to reward us or thank us for doing what we're supposed to do. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus talks about the servant who serves. He said, the, the, the master of the house doesn't say, uh, um, okay, come sit down with me and then he'll feed you. No, feed me and then when I'm done, if there's anything left over, you can eat. As servants of God, we offer our bodies as living sacrifices to the Lord. And um, this was a, a really where I never heard anybody try to justify not serving in church um, by using this vocational doctrine. But but um, in talking to others, it is something that is pretty well known and pretty widespread. So here's what we need to remember. Forget the Lutheran doctrine. What is the biblical doctrine? The biblical doctrine says we're not our own. We're bought with a price. Everything that we have, everything that we are, everything that we ever will be, all of that belongs to God. Here is a question from Matthew. I don't know if it's the same Matthew as before. Uh, pastor Ron, how did you know you were called to be a pastor? Um, 
Matthew, there's probably, and I'm just going to guess generally, 10 things that God has spoken to my heart, either while I was reading the Word or while I was out walking with Jesus and praying, 10 things that I know beyond any doubt at all that it was the Lord who spoke those things to my heart. I call it orders from headquarters. Uh, I know, for example, that God called um, Paula and me to San Antonio. I know beyond any doubt. Paula now knows beyond any doubt. Um, I know that I was called to be a pastor beyond any doubt. And it seemed at the time, Matthew, so impossible to me. I was only saved six months, so I didn't have much of a uh, of a, a biblical background. I, I wasn't raised in church, so I didn't know anything. I didn't even know for sure what a pastor did. I was watching, you know, so-called Christian television and seeing what those pastors did, but it certainly couldn't have been what God was calling me to do. Um, but um, I just knew. I just knew. And And if God's called you to be a pastor, you will absolutely know it. In my case, it happened um, driving home from work in a free, a horrible freeway a traffic jam in Southern California. Um, Raul Reese, who is now a friend of mine, uh, was on the radio, and he was talking about the qualifications of a pastor. And for me personally, Matthew, it was as though Jesus was sitting in the passenger seat of that car. Right there, and it, it, it couldn't have been any more clear. It was like he was saying, pay attention, this is what I've called you to do. And I was talking about the qualifications of a pastor. I, I called Paul. I had a car phone back then. Car phones weren't like our cell phones now. Car phones were like really big, and they had them uh, screwed to the console of your car. And I, I called Paula, and I said, Paula, I think God just called me to be a pastor. I thought she would say, oh, you're crazy. Instead, she said, Ron, please call your sister. I said, call my sister? And she said, yes. And so I called my sister, Christy. I said, Christy, I don't know why I'm calling you, but Paula said I need to call you on this. But I think God's called me to be a pastor. And Christy had been telling Paula that I was called to be a pastor for a very long time, even before I was saved. And um, so when, when I called it, she goes, well, I can confirm that to you because God told me that on such and such a time. And, and so I just knew the confirmation was there. And uh, Matthew, not for one moment have I ever doubted that. Not for one moment have I ever doubted that. And, and this is one of those things, and I hate to be so general, but when you are called to do something and you know it's God, you just know. You just know. And for me... Uh, I don't think there can be much that's more important than that. Because once he calls you, you got to hold on. You can't quit. Lisa says, Pastor Ron, where in the Bible can we learn about how to have a good marriage? Well, Lisa, there isn't a book on marriages, a chapter on marriages. You know, Paul and I have traveled all over the country doing marriage conferences, and and um, I always start the marriage conferences by saying, okay, open your Bibles to um, Good Marriages, Chapter 1, and everybody looks at me like I'm crazy, and I tell them, it's, there isn't one. Not only that, if you look really closely, Old Testament New, I can only find one example of a good marriage 
in all of Scripture. And that's Priscilla and Aquila. And the reason the marriage was good, Lisa, was because they were committed to serving God heart and soul together. One flesh, acting like it, living like they were one flesh. No division, no compromise. They were just serving God. Now, the conspicuous lack of examples of good marriages gives us a lot that we can learn from. But if you're looking for, we're in the Bible, how about how to have a good marriage? The only thing you can do, Lisa, is look to those passages of Scripture that speak to you. Not about the marriage, about your role in the marriage. You see, here's the thing that we have to do. As a husband, I have a role in the marriage. As a wife, Paula has a role in the marriage. There are times when that role isn't thrilling for us to do. Paula asked me one time, she said, Pastor Ron, can I tell the ladies that nobody likes submitting to their husbands? I said, of course you can. It's a curse. But the only response to a curse is to die. Not physically, but die spiritually. Die to you so you can live for Christ. And then he'll tell you what your role in that marriage is. And then when you're doing your part in a good marriage then God will work on your partner. So, Lisa, it's in the whole of the Bible. Make sure that your church is not doing marriage series, but instead make sure that they're teaching the Word. As you teach the Word, you hang around with Jesus, you're going to be more like Him, and you're going to be a better wife, your husband's going to be a better husband, They're both going to be better parents. But it comes from learning who Jesus is and we learn who he is through the word of God. So I really don't like it. And I know people do even here at Calvary Chapel. But I tell them, don't look for a marriage, a book on marriage. Look for the book on marriage. And if you'll do that, I promise you, your marriage will please God. And when your marriage pleases God, then it's going to be a good marriage. So, Lisa, I hope that makes sense to you. i got time for one more. Dennis says, Moses never got to the promised land. Why? Well, Dennis, Moses never got to the promised land. At least it appears that way. I'll tell you about that in a moment. But Moses never got to the promised land because he misrepresented God. And God takes that very, very seriously. He got angry at the people. God wasn't angry at the people. And so Moses forfeited his place in the promised land. Now, unless we think that's really, really harsh, we know Moses got to the promised land. All you have to do is look in the gospel accounts of the transfiguration of Jesus. It was Moses and Elijah who were there with Jesus, explaining things that were going to happen to him as he walked to the cross. So Moses got there. It was a little late. But Moses got there, but he didn't get there initially because he misrepresented God. Every husband and father ought to be shaking in their boots when I say that. Thanks for tuning in today. I appreciate it. Appreciate you, Mike, calling from Salt Lake City. You've been listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word or kslr.com. You can listen live. We'll see you tomorrow. God bless. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. 
The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Oh, yeah.